the simplest commercial baking resource. Brought to you by Bakerpedia and hosted by Lynn Carson with a PhD in grain sciences. Sharing knowledge and helping you grow connections. Listening to the Baked in Science podcast. Welcome to Baked in Science. I'm your host, Lynn Carson, CEO of Bakerpedia, the world's largest online depository of technical baking information. Today, I'll be interviewing Dr. Jane Bach, the technical director at the Wheat Marketing Center, and Doc Peckinpah from Snack Food and Wholesale Bakery. We will be discussing upcoming events and the top new trends coming in 2019. Welcome, Jane. Our listeners are curious. What do you do here at the Wheat Marketing Center? Well, our mission is to serve as the education and research bridge connecting U.S. wheat growers and then the customers who are buying U.S. wheat. We do this by conducting technical training and grower workshops, we do innovative research projects, um, both proprietary and public. We work on product development, and we provide crop quality testing services. We primarily focus on promoting U.S. wheat by demonstrating its quality and its functionality in a, in a range of products, so Asian noodles, cracker, crackers and biscuits, mm -hmm. tortillas and flatbread, and all kinds of other baked products. We do have pilot scale production lines, state-of-the-art quality testing equipment, and a lot of technical expertise in our personnel um, so that we can provide great value to our wheat industry stakeholders. Now, the reason you have a pilot scale production line is? So that we can do some more commercially relevant research using U.S. wheat. There are a lot of things that you really can't do on the bench top, and so you need to have something that's a little bit more um, realistic in terms of processing capabilities. Great, so people can actually uh, rent that line right. to do research. Exactly. Okay. What is your background, Jane? Well, I actually started out as a graduate of the Feed Science and Management program at Kansas State University. Go K-State! <laughs> Yay, go Wildcats! Um, after that, I moved over to food science for my master's. So to kind of get ahead of all the Wizard of Oz jokes associated with Kansas, I just remind everyone that I can feed you and your little dog too. <laughs> <laughs> but after that, you dished us. <laughs> I did, I did. I, I felt like I, I needed to explore my options. So um, I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison for my PhD and I focused on gluten structure and whole wheat bread doughs there. And after that, I went into academia as a postdoc and then as an adjunct professor at the University of Guelph, and then moved into industry for a while as a wheat and wheat flour quality expert with the instrumentation side of the industry. Very cool. What makes you passionate about what you do? I grew up in Kansas surrounded by wheat fields, and my family still owns a farm. You really do fall in love with the grain and the grain industry, and you want to really do your part to contribute to it, to improve it, and to keep it going, and, and that's really what inspired me to get into this field. That's true. You know, Kansas was the first time I ever visited a farm, and wheat farmers, and that is absolutely um, life-changing to me because I got to learn about um, how the tradition that comes around wheat farming 
and how it brings the family together. And you get this huge, gigantic cans and girls who know how to <laughs> bail hay. I was so impressed when I was in Kansas. Um, anyway, I read from Capital Press that this is your dream job. Uh, why is this so? And what do you plan to do here? I was never really 100% happy in academia because there's so much emphasis on bringing in millions of dollars in funding. Yeah, you have to get that, right? Yeah. In order to get your tenure. <laughs> exactly. You, I mean, it's not publish or perish, it's write the successful proposal or perish. <laughs> I mean, you're essentially running a small business empire and you get really disconnected from the research and I hate to say it, but teaching sometimes kind of goes right out the window. Mm -hmm. I went into industry, but I also wasn't 100% happy there because I felt my ability to communicate as a scientist was being constrained um, by what I could say um, in terms of, you know, kind of towing the, the corporate line. Right. So there is no in-between at all. Right. Either exactly. you go into industry or you go to academia. Yeah. Yeah. So this role as the technical director at the Wheat Marketing Center really allows me to reconnect with teaching and scientific communication. That's an area where I feel very comfortable and like I'm adding value to the conversation. But I also get to conduct commercially relevant research that can be used to kind of move the industry forward. I. What I love about this is that I get to participate in really unique collaboration, collaborations and collaborative opportunities um, with groups and companies like Bakerpedia. And I'm really looking forward awesome. to exploring the innovative concepts that we've been talking about with all these boot camps and growth hacks um, that we've been putting together that really aren't on offer anywhere else. I feel the reason for the boot camps are to help answer questions that we have consistently received from our, our from our listeners and users on Wikipedia website. Here are some of the questions that we have been asked, especially about flour. Are you ready, Jane? I'm ready. Shoot. So the first one is, what does peak time on a farinograph mean? And why does my flour fluctuate in it? So peak time uh, is also called the dough development time. And in technical terms, it's the time from the start of dough mixing in the farinograph instrument to the peak in the torque curve that's being traced. So to put that in a little bit more relevant terms, it's essentially the point of optimal dough development. In a commercial process, you'd want to kick the dough out of the mixer at that point and then continue on with the rest of your process. Mm -hmm. The reason it could fluctuate could be due to a lot of different things depending on what's going on. Mm -hmm. It could be indicative that you just don't have a good representative sample. Um, it could be due to the fact that your flower has changed at it as it ages if, if you've had it for a little while. The flower uh, peak time will change every harvest year. Yeah. Um, Maybe your instrument needs to be calibrated or your technician needs more training. What? My instrument needs to be calibrated? Wait, hang on. <laughs> Why do I need to do that? Never mind. We'll leave that for the class. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so you covered five points, you know. Um, we'll, we'll probably have to go more in depth into these kind of discussions during our boot camp. So, um, 
Yes, if listeners do want to come join me and Dr. Jane at the Flower and Ingredient Boot Camp on March 20th and 21st, we will really go really deep into the science of flower and how to analyze it. And my next question is, what is the perfect pH of water for a great fermentation, Jane? Ideally, you want water that's a little bit acidic. It's a much more hospitable environment for your yeast and or your starter cultures than neutral or alkaline water. I don't know what's up with the alkaline water trend. Oh my God, it's <laughs> such a huge trend right now. It's supposed to like stop cancer, you know? <laughs> well, Stop it, stop it. It's definitely a starter killer. <laughs> Um, Well, you know, there is a huge trend, but I don't know if I'm sold on the science behind that. So, yeah, I'm not actively drinking alkaline water. How about that? I I like my water normal. Exactly. Me too. (laughs) So if if we think about um, ideal water pH, like I said, it's slightly acidic. So the ideal pH is one that allows for an initial dough pH of somewhere around six. Mm-hmm. This is on the high side of the optimal range for yeast and starter activity, but through fermentation, the pH will further decrease to about five or so by the end of fermentation, and that's really in the mid-range um, of optimal for for yeast and starters. So we'll spend a lot more time going more in depth on water quality in um, our camp casts and in our boot camps. Great. So water is always an issue. And I get asked this question a lot also. Now, to the next topic. This year, Bakerpedia is partnering with the Wheat Marketing Center. We have something new other than a boot camp. What's that, Lynn? It's called, ready? Growth Hacking! (laughs) Growth Hacking is a one-day seminar after each boot camp. Um, and growth hacking is uh, was created to discuss a commercial subject or topic. So we've got the boot camps and we've got the growth hacking um, sessions. What is the difference between the two, Lynn? I really feel that paths to growth are not usually obvious. I mean, every baker brings it on upon themselves that they have to grow, but they have to grow, they have to grow. But really, it takes extreme creativity to find growth. So Bakerpedia's growth hacking seminars are avenues for commercial bakers to find ingredient and equipment solutions that spark and enhance this creativity. We are going to give them stuff like ideas and products to taste, you know. Um, A growth hacking seminar is a one-day seminar whereby new and innovative solutions are brought in by subject matter experts from ingredient and equipment companies. Whereas the boot camps that we are holding together dive into the fundamentals of that topic with hands-on labs and intensive packing of information. The growth hacking session is a more laid back and fun atmosphere with more tasting and more eating. Just remember, all boot camps that our listeners come to have a growth hacking session attached to it. So come for a boot camp and stay for the growth hacking seminar after that. Eating. I love that. (laughs) Why can't we incorporate more eating into the boot camp? I think eating (laughs) is part of the entertainment, and entertainment is a huge deal in learning. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) As an educator, I I stand by that. Yeah. So, Lynn, 
Where can people go to sign up for Bakerpedia's boot camps and growth hacking seminars? They can do so at bakerpedia.com forward slash academy. I am really looking forward to holding all these boot camps and growth hacking sessions with you, Lynn. I'm looking forward to the food, actually. (laughs) Thank you, Jane. Talk to you soon on our campcast for the boot camp. So there you have it. Dr. Jane and I will be running a series of boot camps together, starting with you listening to a series of podcasts called CamCast. It is now available on the podcast page on Bakerpedia. You need to listen to CamCast before you come to the boot camp. So sign up for our first flower and ingredient boot camp at bakerpedia.com forward slash academy. Hi, Doug. Thank you for coming on my show today. Hi, Lynn. Uh, Happy to be here. Right, everyone. Doug is the chief editor of Snack Food and Wholesale Bakery. So, Doug, what are some of the trends that you are looking at this year for 2019? Well, there are definitely a few that stick out to me. And, um, you know, I I can dig into each one uh, in a little bit of depth. Um, but you know, it runs every, it runs the gamut from everything from, uh, cannabis. Everybody's talking about cannabis these days and how that is going to manifest itself in the industry is kind of interesting. It's good. Mm -hmm. It's going to come in stages for sure. Um, and then, uh, you know, with all of the things that people worry about and, you know, not just in food, but just in general, I think there's a strong trend and a strong desire to make food fun again. Uh, so I, I think we're going to see more playfulness within the food industry in the coming year. And I think that's going to be well received by people. So can um, you, I'm, I'm just going to interrupt you here sure. uh, for quite a bit. Can you give me an example of what you saw in the market that is actually fun? Okay, so every year uh, as we close out the year at Snack Food and Wholesale Bakery, we open up some voting to the industry so people can vote on what they see as kind of their favorite product of the past year. Uh And usually and almost invariably over the last several years, they've always had some kind of direct connection to some prevailing trend whether it was gluten-free when that was really hot and the new stuff was, you know, the new gluten-free stuff was really catching on or something that was really health forward with ancient grains and and things like that. Mm -hmm. And and they've always had some kind of a connection to health and well-being, whether it's a specialty diet or whether it is, you know, actually a truly healthful product. Uh, this year, both selections overwhelmingly were just kind of fun products. So the, the two products that stood to the front were the, um, the a product from Utz, and they were called White Cheddar Baseballs. And, you know, these are just little baseball-looking cheese puffs made with white cheddar. Oh, you know, and if you cool. squint at them just right, they, they can kind of look like a, a cheese, a, a, a baseball made out of puff <laughs> cheese. And the fun thing is the, these were tied into a major promotion with the uh, Major League Baseball. So with us having the sponsorship with Major League Baseball, they got some special packaging for these products. And, you know, they just, there's something about munching on a nice snack while you're watching a baseball game. And it doesn't always have to be peanuts. So that's true. I, I, 
I thought that was a really fun way to bring, you know, an interesting product to the market with some interesting branding. And the idea that Utz was able to secure this uh, sponsorship and this cooperation, this partnership with Major League Baseball, I thought was mm-hmm. a really cool. That's very uh, smart. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And that's just a fun product. And then another one on, on the bakery side was uh, McKee Foods. Um, and this was a really big uh, margin in terms of the, the, the votes for this one. Uh, the product that won there was a Little Debbie birthday cake. It's a oh. little snack cake. It's a snack cake. And it's interesting because they integrate uh, the sprinkles, not just on top, which is pretty easy to do. They also integrated them into the batter matrix. That is tough. And so, yeah, yeah you know, and, and they maintain that kind of color and the piece identity within right. the batter that survived through baking. So it has this kind of double celebration. Of, yeah, and uh, you, know, and you want, know what? That flavor, I keep seeing that flavor coming up. That birthday cake flavor right. keeps popping up. Yeah, people flavor. love People love birthday cake flavors. And it's like, if you're going to have a, a celebration, why not have it be a birthday cake flavor? And people love the idea of little celebrations that re- reward themselves for doing the right thing when they're, they're eating right. Yeah. And also, you know, for, the, for their kids, you know, why not from time to time? So the, the, the line of folks that were in charge of this were really proud of the work that they did. And um, McKee Foods... Um, Loved that the industry was recognizing this so much that they asked yeah. me to send a box yes. of the, the issue out to them to distribute to the folks who are working on the line. Yeah. You know, I was asked this question the other day, Lynn, wh- what do you go, uh, what do you ask for when you go to, for a cake shop for a birthday cake flavor, birthday cake? And I was like, yeah, that's right. There's no birthday cake flavor at a, a cake house. It's just vanilla or chocolate. So, Mm. <laughs> what is a birthday cake flavor? Has anybody really defined that? <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting. I, I think if you're going to break it down from a sensory perspective, I mean, uh-huh. you're going to find a really strong butter note mm-hmm. in there. Um, it's almost invariably a white uh, frosted product. And I think really the sprinkles is what sells it. That's true. I think the uh, sugar f- uh, aroma from the sprinkles and, and lots of it. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, you can just kind of, you can, you can sense that, that aroma that comes off of a product like that. And it's an unmistakable birthcake flavor. That's an interesting point, though. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's something that we're seeing in a lot of different products these days. And, you know, I, I think it was just a fun little cake. And, and that's the thing, is these are fun products that yeah. don't always have to mean too much. It's just a nice little break in the day. And whether it's a baseball game or in your kid's lunch or a, a treat, just to treat yourself in the middle of the afternoon, you know, why not? Yeah, and you're right. You know, making food fun again, I mean, that really crosses out any other trend out there, including the organic and the clean label and, you know, um, the low fat, you know, low calorie trend. I mean, this pretty much trumped it, right? So it's, it, for me, it, it, yeah. it sounds like a more innovative, disruptive um, niche of the market. It is, you know, and that said, I'm one of the other trends that we're definitely seeing is directly tied to health and wellness. Of course, mm-hmm. the, with every trend in the industry, there's always a counter trend. And I think right. the prevailing trend here is ongoing health and wellness. And this making food fun again is a bit of a counter trend. That's true. But, you know, in terms of the, the, the health, the, the health trend that we're seeing really rise to the top this year is healthy aging. 
And we're definitely not alone in this. This is an ongoing focus uh, for people to try and, you know, get an understanding of, you know, what's going to help set them up for the best possible experience when they get older. Mm -hmm. And um, And, again, can you give me an example of what is healthy aging? Well, you know, it, it, it comes in a couple of different stages. So there's kind of a nutritionist, nutritionist led drive that wants to get people focused on healthy aging when they're younger. So it's trying to appeal to the, the, the Gen Y, the millennials, and trying to appeal to Gen X and say, look, what you do today is going to probably have a strong impact on how you're feeling in 20 years and 30 years and so forth. So it's getting that sound nutritional advice. And from, from the baking industry, that's really reestablishing. And really, it's never gone away, but really understanding that grains are such an important part of what we do and how essential they are to good nutrition. So with that trend, are we seeing more products that are um, mainstay of the American diet, like whole grains, high fiber, antioxidant, packed. Yeah, and, and those are definitely all part of it. Um, I think some interesting uh, buzz I've been seeing around intact grains is kind of fun, where, you know, whether or not uh, they provide a better nutritional profile in terms of a whole grain versus an intact grain, they should you know, be the same thing in terms yeah. of add, adding the components of that whole grain back into the product in order to make, ensure that it has the whole grain integrity that uh, verifies the label. Uh, mm-hmm. But intact grains, it's a nice buzzword. Like it's, it. Uh, it, 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 it has all of the, the whole grain nutrition in still the unaltered un, uh, kernel format. And, you know, these are, pro- these are grains that you can over time um, through the, the fermentation process and through through the, the dough handling process um, really yield some remarkable breads. There's some baking companies that have been known for using intact grains. Um, um, the uh, Food for Life folks, uh, the Ezekiel breads, and the, uh-huh. those folks, they like to use intact grains. Yeah, and their products have been selling. Their products yeah. have been selling very well over the past few years. Uh, so that's an interesting area. I think another area, you know, nuts are always good now that we understand the quality of the fat in those nuts right. and how it helps. Yeah, I, mean, I saw a build. huge jump in nut products last year alone. Yeah, and and it's it's not just the the whole nut or nut pieces or nut slivers, but it's nut butters that we're seeing a lot of these days. And I'd love to see a wider uh, use of nut butters in interesting ways beyond just the snack bar category. That's true. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's some great potential there. Um, we're also seeing um, protein-rich grains. So there you get two for one. So you get the protein and you get the grain. Um, and some of these are kind of so-called grains, you know, when you're looking at things like hemp and chia mm-hmm. and uh, uh, even quinoa and flax, they all have good levels of protein in them. And mm-hmm. so that's something you can call out. You can call it the protein, you can call it the grain. And these all help provide the nutrition that we need for our bodies to have what it needs to age well so we're not degrading ourselves through time. Yeah, So I think this healthy aging trend is also 
uh, spearheaded by the large amount of baby boomers going into retirement. Correct me if I'm wrong. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's it's a huge um, aspect of it. I mean, this is a whole population of people that are going to potentially need significant care. And I think the, the, some folks are seeing the writing on the wall that, you know, the, the care that they need may not be just absolutely provided for them, but they have to do their part. They have mm-hmm. to try and live as healthy as they can and not rely on an established system to try and help them out. It's some of this uh, DIY pull, pull your bootstraps up on your own in order to make sure that you're as healthy as you can be going into your older years. And, you know, we do absolutely have to make sure, especially when you're appealing to a wide range of different demographics, that it's not just boomer-driven folks who fully understand and see the, the immediacy of the need of strong nutrition. Um, in order to appeal to a wider range of demographics, these foods have to be very tasty. They have to be well formulated and appealing so that people want to eat them again and again as part of the regular diet. So I have another question on this particular trend. Um, Has it got any parallels with organic or non-GMO? Do you see it? You know, it does in the sense that organic, I see strong growth in organic. I think it, the, the basic I understanding there is people see organic and they think clean label. And yeah. um, it, it's one of these situations where, you know, people talk about clean label in the industry a lot. But when I go out and I talk to people, just everyday shoppers, everyday consumers, they don't always understand what, what I mean when I say clean label. Mm-hmm. And I say, oh, it means, you know, removing X, Y, and Z different types of additives from the product that say, oh, yeah, I'm all for that. Yeah, I think and, and I think they, this, they I, it's hard to interrupt, but I think they recognize it as uh, the natural side of things. And, right. And, and uh, in places like the UK, where I was three months ago, they actually had half aisles that says free from. So their, their customer is educated on what freeform is. And our uh, customers are generally just recognize what, what we're doing is clean as the natural, what the natural and what exists in the natural aisle. So I do see right. an increase in the natural aisle. And um, I think that that has a lot to do with the healthy aging um, products. Do they actually end up in the natural aisle? Yeah, it's it's I, I, the idea of a natural aisle is not wholly adopted in U.S. supermarkets. Occasionally, you will see a natural food section, and you know I I think there's some reluctance um, on the, the the part of both manufacturers and retailers to have a dedicated section to what they consider to be natural. Um, because really, what are the criteria that are set to get a product in there? Is that aisle more natural than the in-store bakery? Is that aisle more natural than you know some of the other aisles that people could be walking down? I think that maybe having uh, branding that is tied to natural would make sense yeah, for some yeah, retailers. Right. Yeah. That you could integrate that into various parts of the store, not just one or two aisles but that you could have sections within the bread market, uh, within the bread aisle, or sections within um, you know, the cookie space That's where you, you might be calling out products that meet a certain set list of criteria. 
Because if, if you're going to call something natural and you're going to call attention to it in that regard, I think you should have some strong underpinnings of uh, what your reasoning is behind that. Yeah, that's, that's very good advice, Doug. Very good advice. So um, what is the next trend that you see that's really strong after healthy aging? You know, one thing that I, I've been paying a lot of attention to uh, is sourdough. And I, sourdough has a number of different things going for it. And I'll, I'll explain a couple. Um, you know, it, and it's not just me who thinks that sourdough is doing well. I mean, I did a little digging. Yeah, I did a little digging. And, um, you know, there is some research that shows that the uh, market research that the, the category is growing of sourdough products dubbed sourdough. And, um, you know, people love social media for food these days, Instagram and Pinterest. And, and on Pinterest, there, there was a spike over the past year for searches for sourdough that is over 400%. Wow. And, on, and on Google, they, they've seen the highest uh, search for the, the quote, quote unquote, how to bake bread mm-hmm. than they've seen for 15 years. So there's something that's going on with people who are rediscovering bread, realizing that they love bread and they want to get involved with it. Isn't they that want funny? To, like everybody is yeah. like talking about low carbon all of a sudden. Everyone wants to bake sourdough. <laughs> you, you know, they want a beautiful photo of homemade bread. Yeah. And, you know, that's wonderful. I love the idea of getting folks engaged with bread, yeah. hands on. The fact of the matter is, you know, when I was growing up, my mom, would make seven loaves of bread on Monday. And then wow. we would have one loaf, <laughs> one loaf for each day. And, you know, wow. by the time we got to the weekend, that loaf of bread that was designated for the weekend usually was getting a little stale. And that, but it was, it was fine. It became French toast or something fun like that. I love that concept. Um, I should be doing that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, people just don't have the time and they don't have frankly, the, the energy and the, the dedication to bake that much bread. So inevitably, their home experiences in working with bread on their own are going to kind of revitalize their idea of what they expect to see at the grocery store. And I think that we could really see some nice traction for sourdough yeah. if we were to bring more, you know, very traditional new world type uh, bread products to the in-store bakery like a sourdough sandwich and slicing loaf and toasting loaf instead of the more traditional um, artisan products that we see there, which are very old world. Um, and there's nothing wrong with those. There's a great market for those types of products as well. But I'd love to see some diversification of a nice sourdough pan bread. Right. Yeah, I, I'm there with you too. I really do think that sourdough might be the savior of the white bread industry. <laughs> Just because of the reintroduction into home bakers and um, home bakers not sustaining, you know, their personal demands for it and going to the grocery store looking for sourdough products because sourdoughs are perceived to be healthier. Um, scientifically speaking, they are not in any way. I mean, I haven't seen any studies, but that buzzword still keeps coming up. And um, right. I, I've 
you know, kept seeing products on the sh shelf that says sourdough. And I haven't seen any products on the shelves that you that that use verbiage that says this cookie uses a sourdough starter or this pizza uses a sourdough starter, which I think, and you can correct me if I'm I'm wrong, is I think there is a huge opportunity there for other products, bakery products, to use a uh, verbiage like sourdough starter or um, Absolutely. sourdough, you know, so. Yeah, so the pizza crust <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Besides and, sourdough, what else are you seeing? Well, uh, one other m note on sourdough, um, and I think this is a, a fascinating aspect of, and part of the reason why we're seeing some increased growth in that area mm -hmm. is that regardless of what the scientific reality of this might be, mm -hmm. there has there been some very firsthand experiences, and this is me talking to bakers and bakers talking to their customers, saying that people who have found themselves to be um, sensitive to gluten not uh, allergic, but sensitive, have better tolerance of sourdough products due, or, due to the longer fermentation. Yeah, and um, actually I might have information that might blow your mind if you have a few seconds. I, sure. I found a company in, I believe, uh, Denmark, that um, did some research into isolating uh, sourdough enzymes. And they use the sourdough enzymes to create a uh, low FODMAP flour. So the, the effect of sourdough is actually reducing the amount of FODMAPs in the bread. So therefore, you know, that's why sourdough works so well with a lot of people because naturally there are enzymes in there that, that reduces the amount of FODMAP. Um, that people react to and, um, you know, the common disease, um, irritable bowel syndrome or IBS is, um, mm. is caused by high FODMAPs and wheat is one of them. So the longer yeah. fermentation that you have within the, the, the dough and the loaf, the better that the digestibility of that particular bread. So that's why we're seeing, I'm also hearing a lot of people say the same thing that they told you. I can eat sourdough bread so much, I can digest it so much better than regular pan bread. So perhaps, you know, more study needs to go into this. We don't know. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see that. Um, and I've one recipe, you mentioned sourdough pizza crusts and, and things like that. I've been working on uh, a sourdough cinnamon rolls recipe. Oh. That nice. is just turning out fantastic. So oh, wow. I, I agree that there's there, there's a greater opportunity to bring sourdough into new product categories. I'd love to see that happen. Yeah, me too. Um, other things that are going on, um, you know, one key aspect, and really this is not as sexy as everything else that I'm talking about, but <laughs> one of the topics, almost all the topics that we've been discussing so far have a direct relationship with the needs and desires of consumers. Um, but one thing that they often don't want to hear about and one thing that is omnipresent in discussions in the industry is cutting costs. And it really, if you want to look at a trend and something that I've been seeing over the past several years in, in the industry is that everybody is looking for a way to cut costs. They have to get more efficient in order to survive and get the margins that they need and they, whenever they have fluctuations for their ingredients and they have transportation and distribution costs that are through the roof, they have to find ways to make their, their operation more efficient and 
because they don't want to have to pay, pass that cost along to the consumer. So I, I think this is something that we talk about every year, and it's something that I think is going to continue to gain prominence. Do you see that cost-cutting um, effect coming from the equipment side of things? Oh, sure. I mean, you can shave uh, pennies off, you know, with, with the, the right investment in equipment and calculate your ROI over the next year or two and, and really see what makes sense for you. But then it's not just the equipment and buying the equipment. It's really learning how to work with that equipment in the best way possible. And that's why some of the brightest minds in the industry today are so focused on lean manufacturing and mm -hmm. continuous improvement and just the ability to really see how their products are, you know, getting hung up just a little bit here and there that's and just true. always working to get a little bit smoother, a little bit more seamless in how they're running their their operation. And, you know, the, the idea of this being continuous is absolutely true. You don't get to a point where you stop and say, oh, okay, we've got it. Uh, let's move on to the next thing. People who are smart about this are going to always be focusing on it a little bit and just making sure that what they're doing is exactly the right operation. Ingredients can change a little bit over time. Mm -hmm. uh, climate can change. The operational climate can change a little bit, uh, temperature and so forth. Um, little parameters that you think won't impact your, your operation do. And so you always have to keep an eye on it. And as long as you can get leaner and more streamlined with what you're doing, you're always moving in the right direction. That's true. What else besides cost-cutting? Well, the first one uh, th that I, I mentioned is cannabis. Yes, I was going to ask you about that when you're done. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited about cannabis. I see so yeah. many people working on this. So th this was very much a mom and pop cottage industry, state by state. And, I'm, and for our purposes, and really the only purposes that I'm interested in, are, are within the edibles. And yeah. this is cookies and brownies and bars and other snacks and desserts. And it, 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 it was mom and pop operations that were maybe in a food uh, safe kitchen, approved kitchen, maybe not. Um, and <laughs> a lot of they are getting, maybe not. <laughs> well, I know, I know. And I've been in some of these facilities and they need help. They need help getting up to speed in terms of their GMPs. They have to understand what a HACCP plan is. They have to get to the point where they are providing as close to an FDA-approved product as possible. That's true. And, and, actually, <clears throat> and actually, you have, depends on what state you are, the state regulations and the federal regulations and the permitting, I heard, is really hard to get. So It is. And I, I've been in, in communication. We actually launched a publication in November called Cannabis Products. Oh, uh, focused. Exciting. Yeah, it's explosive, focused exclusively on edibles and beverages, and yes. it's all about helping streamline uh, product development, helping establish um, a reliable supply chain. Basically, everything that we do for the other food and beverage publications and BNP media on our group that we already do for the mainstream industry, but applying it to this growing, very quickly growing uh, cannabis industry in legal states. So it'll be fun to watch this market as they go along. Um, food safety is of paramount concern, mm -hmm. you know, and just having something that traces 
the the industry from farm to fork, and that fork could very well be in food service um, or at home. There's some states that are setting up, uh, you know, restaurants and and getting licenses for these things, and we have to make sure that we're providing, you know, the the safest and um, the most. I think reliable in terms of what people expect for their experiences, but that isn't even the biggest area of growth for this industry. The biggest area of growth is going to be CBD. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you. This is this is the aspect. This is the the the, the cannab- cannabinoid in cannabis. It's non psychoactive. It doesn't give you a buzz, mm-hmm. but it's just good for you. And they have now passed the farm bill. Mm-hmm. at the federal level, which allows for industrial hemp to be grown in all of the states, yes, regardless exactly. of wh- yeah. whether there's cannabis legalization or not. Now you can grow hemp everywhere, yeah. and you, you can extract CBD from that hemp and have it available for food products. So, so awesome. this is going to be a big growth within healthy and functional foods and something that we're keeping a very close eye on in uh, cannabis products publication and in snack food and wholesale bakery. Right. So um, we have launched a series of boot camps um, that uh, it's a one-to-one kind of hands-on situation where we have intensive training for bakers. Doug, and um, one of those boot camps will end in a, in a cannabis growth hacking series seminar. So it's going to be oh, yeah. very soon. And I'm so glad you mentioned this because I am about just scrambling, trying to get more information on how to put a class together to educate bakers how to bake with cannabis. And guess what? That's not, not enough information out there. So um, I think uh, we are stumbling on something big. And I think this is a huge area for growth that we really need to help bakers with in terms of understanding um, food safety aspects, sanitation, you know, um, we need uh, legal experts, you know, we need um, uh, extraction experts you know, so um, we are currently scurrying, trying to look for um, experts in these areas to bring into the seminar. So I'll keep you um, updated on that one. And, you know, feel free to join us on that. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. you know, feel free to call on me for resources. I've established quite a Rolodex in this industry since we launched our cannabis products That's so awesome. publication. That. So yeah. everything from uh, business to legal to groups that we're working with in Washington um, and the, the supply chain, the, the equipment folks oh who gosh, are trying to... issue. I can't even start. It's like people keep asking yeah. me that. I'm like, no, I don't have it. Now I know who to go, go to. <laughs> And, you know, we need to come at this from two different angles, too, because on the one hand, the mom and pop operations that need the helping hand to get their QAQC and their food safety and all of that up to snuff, that's one aspect. The other is we're getting calls from companies like, uh, you know, Coke, Coca-Cola, or from um, major industry players, as we've seen, you know, a lot of the alcohol uh, companies like um, um, Lagunitas and Anheuser-Busch and Constellation Brands starting to invest in this industry. The mainstream companies that we know and love and work with every day are very interested in getting in on this game, but they just can't do it or they don't know how to do it while it's still federally an issue. 
So this is going to be great. Yeah. yeah. A great time for startups to really own this niche, man. I can't wait to see who comes play this year. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm really excited about this. Um, Yeah. So, so that, that, that's what we're seeing. Great. Great. Um, So uh, are there any other things that stand out to you this year? Oh, there's so much that we could talk about, Lynn, but uh, those are the five. Let's give it one more trend for the bakers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see. One more trend. We didn't talk about non-GMO. Is that still uh, steady growth or plateaued out? You know, if you're... If you want to add one more trend, it's absolutely going to be clean label. But how we call it clean label, you know, is another matter. We can talk about the increasing number of ingredient suppliers who are dedicating themselves to offering non-GMO. It's also an increased dedication of different bakery ingredients that are offered for organic compliant uh, products. Um, It's coming at this this situation from so many different angles and you know understanding what we need in one product versus another is a whole nother discussion because Mm -hmm. what you need in a snack cake is going to be very different than what you need in a loaf of bread versus what you need in a uh, a baked potato chip you know they're just they're all different types of products with different target consumer demographics and not everybody is going to be thinking about clean label in the same way but you can be rest assured that all folks within the industry are thinking about clean label in one way shape or form because they know that there is an increasing need for this type of thing in the industry that's great well doug thanks for uh, coming on to my show today oh it's my pleasure lynn always happy to (laughs) this is a great interview thanks bye Okay, thank you. Bye. There you have it. You heard Doug. Cannabis, fun foods, intact grains, the fun stuff. Do you know where you can learn more about baking trendy things? At our boot camps and growth hacking seminars. Come to our flour and ingredient boot camp and stay for our cracker growth hacking. Learn more at bakerpedia.com forward slash academy today. And before I go, please like, comment, and subscribe to Baked in Science. Till the next episode, bakers, don't forget to bake trendy!